All right, good morning, church family, and grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. This is the last chapter of the book, and this will be the last sermon in this series. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 408. Page 408. I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this final text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, we have been so grateful for the months that you have given us to study the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for all of the lessons that we've learned from it. And Lord, we ask that you would be with us in this final Sunday, studying the book together. We pray that you would use it, Lord, to shape our view of the Christian life, that you would use this text to give us a greater vigilance to maintain sound doctrine and righteous living, that you would protect us, Lord, from spiritual backsliding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this being our last time together in the book of Nehemiah, I'd like to take just a few moments to review where we've been in the series. Okay, so as the series began, we learned that Nehemiah was an Israelite who lived in the heart of Persia about 2,500 years ago. We also learned that Nehemiah was a very righteous man. When he learned of the terrible state of God's people back in Israel, his heart was broken. And so Nehemiah began to fast and to pray and to brainstorm about how God might use him to bring a revitalization to this nation. And finally, Nehemiah developed a plan, and he took it to his boss, King Artaxerxes of Persia. And he asked for permission to go back to his homeland. Artaxerxes listened to the request, and he granted Nehemiah permission. And so Nehemiah made this long 750-mile journey from Susa, where he was based, all the way to Jerusalem in Israel. Artaxerxes appointed Nehemiah to be the governor of the province of Judah. That's where Jerusalem was located. And this would give Nehemiah all the authority that he needed to enact his reforms. So Nehemiah finally arrived in Jerusalem. First thing he did was to assess the state of things. And then he developed his concrete plan of action. Nehemiah determined that his first task needed to be the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. See, Nehemiah was very wise, and he understood that if Israel was to be revitalized, it would have to start with her capital city. That was the heart of her politics, her economics, and her religious life. So he had to start with Jerusalem. And if Jerusalem was to be revitalized, he would have to begin with her walls, because as long as the walls were down, that city would always be vulnerable to foreign invasion. And so Nehemiah undertook this massive effort. He mobilized all of the people of Judah, men, women, and children, to get involved in the work of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. And it took them weeks and weeks. They faced all kinds of opposition, but the work was completed. They got the walls back up. Well, then Nehemiah's next task was to restore moral integrity to Israel. 
Because you see, as these walls were going up, Nehemiah learned of a great scandal taking place in Israel. There were some very wealthy Israelites taking financial advantage of the poor Israelites. They were extending loans to the poor Israelites at exorbitant interest rates. They were accepting the poor's homes and their farms as collateral. And then when they couldn't pay back their loans, the rich were seizing the homes of the poor. This was all violating the law of Moses. It was a tremendous scandal. And so Nehemiah had to tackle this head on, and he did. He restored the land, the homes to the poor. He set up new accountability structures, and he ensured that Israel would be governed by the law of Moses, that she would be a nation of moral integrity. Well, then after that, Nehemiah turned his attention to restoring Israel's corporate worship. He understood that worship is the fuel of reformation. He understood that, that Israel existed as a nation to worship God and to lead other nations to worship. And so her worship had to be restored. And I trust you'll remember that first great worship service in Israel, organized by Nehemiah and led by Ezra the scribe. And the whole congregation of Israel was a part of this grand worship service, about 40,000 people in number. And on this great day, Ezra the scribe ascended a high wooden platform built for the purpose, and he took a copy of God's word with him. And as he stood behind his podium and he opened God's word, the congregation of Israel rose to its feet. And then Ezra led the congregation in prayer, and he prayed to God, and he thanked God for every instance of God's grace to this nation. And all of the people responded, Amen, Amen, which means, yes, God, everything Ezra says, we affirm too. And then Ezra read from God's word, and he expounded God's word. And while Ezra did this, he had all kinds of helpers panning out through this massive crowd, and they would read what Ezra read, and they would expound the scriptures just like Ezra to make sure that everybody heard and understood God's word. And as a result of this great worship service, there was a season of national repentance as all the children of Israel realized how far they had fallen from God's righteous standards. And they all confessed their sins, and they all showed the fruits of their repentance. And then they all went home and enjoyed a great celebration within their households, thanking God for his pardon for sin. After this, Nehemiah led the people of Israel to renew their national covenant with God. You see, Israel is unique in all of world history in that this nation was founded upon a covenant initiated by God himself. The Ten Commandments were the foundation of that covenant, but there were many other statutes and laws, along with promises of blessing for obedience, promises of cursing for disobedience. Israel had fallen far from the standards of God in that covenant. But on this occasion, as Israel's moral integrity was restored, and as her worship was restored, and as she had this season of renewed repentance and faith, it was time to renew that covenant as well. And so all of Israel pledged to God that they would be faithful to him henceforth. And as we closed last week at the end of Nehemiah chapter 12, we saw a great celebration take place. 
a celebration involving trumpets and choirs and politicians and priests. They were all celebrating the restoration of the nation of Israel. I mean, everything was back. The city of Jerusalem was strong again, and its walls were up, and the city was repopulated. Its worship had been restored. The temple was buzzing with activity once again. The priesthood was being funded once more. Everybody had repented. Everybody was believing in God. The covenant had been renewed. All was well in Israel. And so we saw this great celebration. Well, friends, this takes us to our text today, which is Nehemiah chapter 13. And here's what has happened between Nehemiah 12 and 13. After that great celebration at the end of chapter 12, Nehemiah realized that his work in Israel was done. King Artaxerxes had commissioned him to go to revitalize Israel, and he realizes that he has succeeded. And that means it's time for Nehemiah to go home. And so that's what he does, looking at all of the fruits of his hard labor. He is pleased that the work is done. He goes 750 miles all the way back home to be in the court of King Artaxerxes once again. And he takes up his job as the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah remains in the heart of Persia for many years, serving faithfully alongside King Artaxerxes. But eventually, eventually Nehemiah's heart turns back to his homeland of Israel. And I don't know exactly what prompts Nehemiah to want to go back. Maybe it's just that he's homesick for, for Israel, or maybe it's that he's hearing some, some disturbing reports but whatever the case might be, after many years back at the king's court, he decides that he needs to go to Israel once again. And so beginning in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4, we have the, the events subsequent to Nehemiah's return. So keep in mind here, we don't have a direct sequence of events from chapter 12 to chapter 13. We have this major time gap where he was in Persia, and now he's come back. As we will see together, the state of Israel upon Nehemiah's return leaves him completely horrified. Completely horrified. He finds that Israel is falling back into its old ways once again. Friends, this final chapter of Nehemiah is a cautionary tale on the dangers of spiritual backsliding. It shows us just how easy it is to drift away from a commitment to God, to fall into sin. This final chapter shows us the importance of being able to recognize the signs of spiritual backsliding so that when they begin to manifest in our own lives or in our church, we can stop that backsliding before it has gone too far. Today's passage highlights four sure signs that we are on the spiritual decline. I want to go through each of those four signs with you this morning, and then we'll talk about how we can reverse the damage once that backsliding has begun. Here's the first sure sign of backsliding. It's that we're becoming indifferent 
to corporate worship. We're becoming indifferent to corporate worship. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. The text reads, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, that's the temple, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Okay, so here's what's happening in these verses. Nehemiah has been gone a really long time, years and years he's been away. He comes back to Israel. His first stop is to the temple of Jerusalem. This shows us the spiritual zeal of Nehemiah. First thing he wants to see when he gets back to Israel is the house of God. But he gets there, and what does he find? He finds an abomination. He finds that Tobiah the Ammonite has turned the temple of God into his own private residence. By the way, this is the same Tobiah that we encountered way back in chapter 2. The man who was so angry that Nehemiah was trying to rebuild Jerusalem's walls that he organized this great group of soldiers to harass and, and demean and threaten the workers and who himself hatched a plot to murder Nehemiah. This is the very same Tobiah. And now Nehemiah comes back and he finds Tobiah is living in the temple. In Jerusalem. How could this happen? Well, according to verse 4, Tobiah was related to Eliashib the priest. Probably through marriage. So, one of Tobiah's children or grandchildren had married one of Eliashib's children or grandchildren. And so, the priest was related to this pagan governor. And somehow, during, Tobiah, or excuse me, during Nehemiah's absence, Tobiah had convinced his relation to clear out one of the chambers of the temple so he could live there. And I'm sure this was a pretty slow process. Maybe after Nehemiah left, Tobiah renewed his acquaintance with Eliashib. Maybe it started with an exchange of letters. And then maybe Tobiah started making visits to Jerusalem to see some of his family. And maybe from there it turned into overnight stays. And then maybe the overnight stays became more and more frequent. Until finally Tobiah turned to Eliashib and he said, You know, I don't want to keep putting you people out when I make my visits. Wouldn't it be nice if I just had an apartment or something here in Jerusalem that, uh, where I could stay on my visits and... Apparently, Eliashib said, you know, that does sound like a good idea. Let's go ahead and do it. But where should we put you up? And then Tobiah says, well, you know, we've got, we've got that old storage room at the temple. That's not being used. Why don't we just clear that out? I can throw a cot in there, and that'll work just fine. And Eliashib said, that sounds like a good idea to me. Let's do it. So before they knew it, we had the governor of a pagan people living in the holiest site in Israel. Indeed, the most holy site on all of planet Earth, the place where God physically manifested His presence. 
No, friends, there's a reason why we call it spiritual backsliding. It's because it doesn't all happen in one great leap. You don't go from committed believer to committed apostate in one fell swoop. No, it happens very slowly over a process of time. Just one small compromise leading to another small compromise, and on and on they go. One little concession to the world of unbelief, and then another concession, and then another, until you end up in a place where you never imagined you would be. That's how backsliding occurs. One little compromise at a time. You know, friends, this can happen to individuals, to local churches, and to entire denominations. The solution to this? Well, those who still have some spiritual zeal left need to have the courage to confront the backsliding and to call their brothers back to faithfulness. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Nehemiah records his response to this. He says, And I was very angry. By the way, that was exactly the right response for Nehemiah to have. Righteous anger to see the holiest sight of Israel turned into the dwelling place of a pagan leader. He should have been angry. And he says, In his anger... He threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Verse 9, Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So he witnesses this spiritual backsliding. And what does Nehemiah do? He is so filled with godly zeal that he cannot help but reverse the damage done. And so he plows right into Tobiah's chamber, throws the furniture out, restores all of the items for worship. And he insists that that temple be used for the worship of God from this point forward. You know, this whole scene reminds me of the great event in Christ's earthly ministry when he visited the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember that story? And he came into the temple and he saw that instead of worship taking place, there were all these money changes. They were buying and selling and making a great profit and they were slapping each other on the back and there were farm animals milling about the temple courtyards. And our Lord was so furious that he twisted together a whip and he began beating those who were misusing the Lord's temple. And he overturned the tables and he said, My father's house will not be used as a den of robbers. Nehemiah's action here is a foreshadowing of our Lord's great cleansing of the temple. Friends, when we are backsliding, we need someone like Nehemiah who will confront us, who will shake us out of our complacency, someone who will rekindle in us a desire for faithfulness to God's word. But this is the first sign of spiritual backsliding. It is that we are becoming indifferent to the worship of God. A place once dedicated to worship was turned into the dwelling place of a pagan. Oh, God forbid that here at Grace Baptist Church, this place dedicated to God's worship should ever be turned from its purpose because of the spiritual indifference of her people. Well, now we turn to the second sign of spiritual backsliding. It happens when we are no longer giving to the Lord's cause. 
So no longer concerned about pure worship and no longer giving to the Lord's cause, or at least not giving like we used to. Look at verse 10 with me now. Nehemiah writes, and I also found out, let me just stop there, isn't that a tragic statement? That Nehemiah had invested so much of his life into the reformation of Israel. And at the time that he had departed, it was perfect. But now he comes back years later, and it's bad enough that Tobiah was living in the temple. But now we find that that wasn't the only problem. There are a whole series of outrages in Israel. Here he discovers something else. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Now, before Nehemiah had left, the Israelites had promised to support these religious workers. And according to chapter 12, they actually did. They generously supplied the Levites and the singers, those dedicated to temple worship. They supplied them with all that they needed so their full-time occupation could be temple worship. But apparently at some point during Nehemiah's absence, the Israelites decided that supporting the Levites and singers was just too big a burden for them to bear. I'm sure they had all kinds of excuses. Well, back then, Nehemiah, the economy was roaring. Now the economy is in shambles. We can't give anymore. Or maybe they said, Nehemiah, you know, we've had a few bad years with our crops. There's just no surplus to give. I'm sure they had all kinds of really good excuses, but that's all they were, just excuses. Truth was that the Israelites just didn't want to part with their resources any longer. And so the Levites had to start fending for themselves. That meant the Levites had to leave the temple precincts. They had to go find homes, and they had to go raise their own crops and support themselves. Of course, this meant that temple worship was no longer taking place. Okay, no wonder Tobiah was able to get that room in the chamber of the temple. They didn't need a room to store all of their um, offerings for worship anymore. Nobody was making any offerings for worship. They didn't need that room anymore. And the Levites weren't being supported. They had to go support themselves. The result was that the Lord's work could not be fully carried out in Israel any longer. Nehemiah's response, verses 11 to 13, he says, So I confronted the officials, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Okay, so Nehemiah once again confronts the offenders. He compels them to start giving again. And then he sets up new accountability structures to ensure that the donations will be handled properly. No, friend, one sure sign that we are spiritually backsliding is that we're becoming indifferent to worship. Another short sign is that fewer and fewer of our resources are being directed to the Lord's work. And our excuses are mounting. Well, I would if I could, 
If I had more, you know, if the Lord would bless me, I would be happy to give back to him. When the excuses mount and the generosity decreases, we know that we're in a state of backsliding. I see a third sign of spiritual backsliding in this text. It's when we are also misusing the Lord's day. When we're misusing the Lord's day. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Nehemiah writes, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself. Now, friends, earlier the Israelites had promised to keep the Sabbath day holy, just as the law of Moses had prescribed. No buying, no selling, no manufacturing. They would use the Sabbath day for rest and worship. That was all. That was their pledge. But look at the Israelites now. Wine, grapes, figs, fish, textiles, and more were being bought and sold and manufactured on the Sabbath day. Once again, I'll bet the Israelites had all kinds of good excuses. They probably said to Nehemiah, Yes, Nehemiah, we're Jews. We observe the Sabbath. But, you know, all the nations around us, they're not Jews. They work on the Sabbath. You know, if we don't open for business on the Sabbath, the nations around us, they're just going to take their business elsewhere. So we either do this on the Sabbath or we can't do it at all. And I'm sure they brought up the state of the economy to Nehemiah. They said, you know, times are really tough. Six days of work isn't enough to cover the bills anymore. We need to work all seven days. All kinds of excuses. But, you know, in verse 17, Nehemiah just calls it evil. Evil. Verse 18, he says they were profaning the Sabbath day. Which means they were taking something holy and they were treating it as if it was vulgar. Then he confronted them once again. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So Nehemiah confronts the Israelites for profaning the Sabbath. He sets aside all of their excuses and he says, no, this is a moral issue. You are doing evil in the sight of God. And then in his capacity as the governor of Judah, he ordered that the gates of Jerusalem should be locked before the Sabbath began, and that they should remain locked until the Sabbath was over, and that way nobody could come in and nobody could go out. There would be no buying and selling on the Sabbath day any longer. Now, friends, we might not be under the law of Moses today, but we are under the law of Christ. And the law of Christ declares that God's people must gather on the first day of every week, and that when we gather, we must pray and sing, and read God's word together, and we must hear God's word expounded, and at regular intervals, we must baptize our new converts, and we must participate in the Lord's Supper. And friends, it is a sure sign that we are spiritually backsliding if Sunday morning has ceased to be the most important time 
on our calendars. And over the years, I've heard many excuses from able-bodied people why they cannot make it to Sunday morning worship. Years ago, one man told me, well, you know, my son has baseball practice on Sunday mornings, and we can't very well miss baseball practice. No, God forbid that we should miss the opportunity to bat around a ball on a field when we could be worshiping God and fellowshipping with his people instead. We wouldn't want to miss our game for something like worship. The most common excuse I've heard over the years is this one, Pastor, we're just really busy right now. You know, we work our tails off Monday through Saturday. We got to sleep in on Sunday. I guess it would be too difficult to wake up early Sunday, go to church, and then take an afternoon nap. The decision is made. We will skip the worship altogether. My friends, these are excuses. They're excuses of the backslidden. When they come, we need someone like Nehemiah to confront us head on and say, no, this is a moral issue. God tells his people to gather the first day of the week because he deserves our worship and because we need each other. We need the fellowship. We need the accountability. We need each other. We need someone like Nehemiah to shake us out of that spiritual lethargy. Now to the fourth sure sign of spiritual backsliding. This one kind of incorporates all of the others. It's that we are falling in love with the world. We're falling in love with the world. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. He says, In those days also... I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashad. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Well, friends, this might have been the most tragic scenario of them all. When Nehemiah departed from Israel those many years ago, they had put away all forms of paganism. They had vowed before God that they would not give their sons and daughters in marriage to a pagan people because they understood that it's very rare for a pagan to be converted to the true religion of God. More often, the the true believer is brought over to the side of the world. They had vowed they would not let this happen, but at some point during Nehemiah's absence in those long years in which he was away, Their attitude changed, and once again the sons and daughters of Israel were given in marriage to the sons and daughters of the pagan nations around them. And the result was predictable. The pagans were not won over to Judaism. The Jews were won over to paganism. And children were born to these couples, and the children grew up and they learned to speak the language of the pagan nations around them, but they did not know how to speak the Hebrew language of Israel. And friends, understand what the significance of this would be. If a generation of children were to grow up not even knowing the Hebrew language, that meant they would never hear the words of God. Because God's word was written in Hebrew. They could no longer listen to God's word as it was read. 
They could no longer read it for themselves. They could no longer sing the worship songs of Israel. They could no longer listen to a sermon based on God's word. They would no longer be able to to learn the ways of God. This is what was at stake, the religious extinction of God's people. I found this quote from Derek Kidner compelling. He said, A single generation's compromise can undo the work of centuries. My own pastor, Steve Thomas, says this, The church is always just one generation away from extinction. Isn't that true? The faith can be perpetuated from one generation to the next for millennia. But all it takes is just one generation, just one, to say, this is not worth our time anymore. And to decide they will not raise their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Just one generation to say, we're not going to worship anymore. We're not giving to the cause of God anymore. We're not making this a priority anymore. We're not reading the scriptures together anymore. One generation that does that, and the church is extinct. This explains Nehemiah's dramatic response. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, And I confronted them and cursed them. That means he pronounced God's judgment on them. And he beat some of them. And he pulled out their hair. These were designed to publicly shame the guilty parties. He says, And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Now, friends, all of this may seem extremely harsh, and indeed it is. But I believe Nehemiah would say to us that desperate times call for desperate measures. You see, the people of God were on the verge of going extinct. One generation raised like this, there would be no knowledge of the Word of God, no ability to read the Word of God. The the faith would stop. Israel would cease to exist as a light to the nations of the world. It would all be over. The law of Moses threatened the destruction of Israel if they should continue in practices like this. And so Nehemiah, in his capacity as the governor of Judah, decided that the only way to get through to his lawless citizens was through corporal punishment and through public shaming. And so that is what he did. Maybe this would shake them out of their complacency. Verse 28, we find an equally shocking scenario. It says, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from you. Do you remember Sanballat the Horonite? He was one of these other guys who, along with Tobiah, was trying to kill Nehemiah and stop the revitalization of Israel. Well, now he is related to the high priest of Israel through intermarriage. And so the nation is being corrupted, and now the priesthood itself is going to be lost. Nehemiah's reaction is recorded in verse 29. He says, They have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so, Nehemiah cleansed it all. Look at verses 30 and 31. He says, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. Speaking here, not in racial terms, but in religious terms. Everything smacking of paganism. He cleansed it from Israel. 
and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. And then the book ends with a prayer. Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, for good. God, remember that I tried my best. I tried my best to reform your people. Friends, 1 John chapter 2 says the following. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. My friends, we must beware of the danger of spiritual backsliding. We must beware of that spiritual drift which can lead us away from our love of God and lead us into our love of the world. We must beware of that pull away from God. That pull that, that we feel every time we, we are tempted not to participate in public worship. Every time we're tempted to hoard our resources instead of giving it to His work. Every time that we feel the temptation to violate the laws of God, to misuse the Lord's day. Every time we are tempted to join hands with the world rather than to be a prophetic voice within the world. Friends, we must resist the temptation to spiritually backslide. Because if we give in to this temptation and we drift away from the Lord, then we are condemning ourselves and our posterity after us to life without God and all the blessings that come from it. The solution, of course, as we have seen, we need people like Nehemiah, people who still have some spiritual zeal, people who also have the moral courage to confront backsliding when they see it. We need people who will have the courage to confront their children and their, their fellow church members. We need church leaders who will con confront their church members when they see signs of spiritual apathy and they see a drift away from the things of God. We need Nehemiahs who will call God's people back to faithfulness, who will do everything in their power to bring them back. There's another way to prevent spiritual backsliding, and that is through spiritual watchfulness. Every one of us here needs to learn spiritual watchfulness. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober in spirit. Be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour. Revelation 3.2 says, Wake up and strengthen what remains. Friends, we need some Nehemiahs among us, people with the courage to confront the backsliding, to do so with gentleness and respect, but to confront them nonetheless. But then all of us need to learn to be watchful over our own souls. And we do this through prayer, for starters. 
constantly going to God, asking Him to keep our conscience sensitive, to keep our desire for Him strong so that we will not drift. We must be in the Scriptures often so that God's Word can do its work within us. And friends, we must guard our hearts, which means guarding the gateways into our hearts. We need to guard what we're setting before our eyes. We need to be like King David who said, I will set no wicked thing before my eye. You know, that'd be a good verse to put on our television sets and our computer screens, maybe on our phone cases, to remind ourselves we must not look at that which is evil. We must be careful what we let through our ears. We must be careful what we do with our hands and our feet, where we go, how we occupy ourselves. We must be always mindful of what we are doing, seeing, hearing, and exposing ourselves to. Now, there are some things in this world that we just cannot cannot guard ourselves against, right? You go to work, your coworkers are going to do what they're going to do. You can't prevent that. But you can control what you entertain yourself with at home. You can control who your closest friends will be. You can control what you will put before your eyes, what you will listen to with your ears. You can control what literature you will read. My friend, you must be spiritually watchful. You must be sure that while you are educated about the world, you are not causing yourself to get interested in what the world has to offer. You're not being tempted by their vain philosophies. And friends, we must keep close to our local church. We must keep close to people like Nehemiah who will be willing to hold us accountable for our actions. Friends, the book of Nehemiah ends with a cautionary tale. It's here for us so that we will not make the same mistake these ancient Israelites made. Now let's pray that God would preserve us right now. Our Lord, we do thank you for the book of Nehemiah, for every lesson that we have learned from it. And as we come to the end, we find this cautionary tale. We pray that we would take heed to the warning. Lord, please do not let us, our, our families, our church, our sister churches drift from Scripture to drift from its spiritual zeal. Help us always to be faithful. Lord, keep our conscience sensitive. Help us to keep our accounts short with you. Help us, Lord, to be there for one another, to hold each other accountable so that the faith can be preserved in our generation and perpetuated to the next so that future generations can know your salvation and know the joy of living for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.